Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really like doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today, we get to talk about a subject I love talking about, the creation narratives in the Bible. Dr. Nicholas Shazer has a new course coming out soon that is called Israelite Creation in Context. So consider this your sneak peek at the content of his course. I really love talking about Genesis 1 through 3 because they are deeply contextual texts. We as a modern audience do not intuitively know what is going on when we do a quick reading of the text because there are so many plays on the Israelite context and on other ancient Near Eastern cultural ideas that we need help discovering what question is being asked and answered in Genesis. We are going to explore a small part of what Dr. Shazer covers in his course, starting right away with an issue of genre. What kind of literature is this and how do we know how to read it? Enjoy the conversation. Uh, So Genesis 1 in particular, but also Genesis 1 through 3, uh, is drawing on a lot of different kind of literary conventions and forms of literature that would have been known at the time in the ancient Near East. And one of these, obviously, is the ancient Near Eastern creation account. And Genesis 1 sounds a lot like other contemporary, really earlier ancient Near Eastern accounts, like, for example, the creation account of the Babylonians, which is called the Enuma Elish, which in English means something like when on high. And it really talks about not only the creation of the world, but also the creation of all the gods that the Babylonians worship. And right at the outset, we see that Genesis 1 does not start in that way. Genesis 1 features a single god creating the world. So there's there's a difference there and a very important difference. But uh, in other ways, these texts parallel each other. And the, and the writer or writers of Genesis 1, um, it's pretty clear that Genesis 1 is what scholars want to call a priestly text. That is, it sounds a lot like a school of writers that are referred to as the priests, or sometimes it's just abbreviated P, and they're doing a lot of things. It sounds kind of Leviticus-like, Genesis 1. So if you want a comparative of another priestly text, you can take a look at how Leviticus sounds. And when you can read Genesis 1 in Hebrew, it does sound kind of like Leviticus. And so we know there's a priestly concern there. And part of that concern is to show, I would say the main part of the concern of Genesis 1, is to show that the God of Israel is the Most High God, is in Hebrew El Elyon, um, superior to other gods. And the way that Genesis 1 does this is to draw on other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts and to show us based on those accounts and and comparing with those accounts why the God of Israel is indeed the greatest God. So 
in a way, there's there's interesting things when I talk to people about Genesis 1 and Enuma Elish. And people always respond with this, you mean the Israelites are just copying. So how can it be truly what's happening? Like, how do we know that that's how the creation of the world happened or something? But if if that's not the purpose of the text. So if the Israelites are copying or borrowing or they know the themes other people are talking about and they're changing them, um, how does that prove that God is the God of the world? If the whole rest of the chapter seems to be, this is how the skies were created, this is how the earth was created. So how can it really be just about God? That's a great question. You know, from a modern perspective, we pick up the text of Genesis 1, and it's the first text we get in the Bible. So if we're starting from the beginning, we've got absolutely no context for how we should be reading this material or understanding it. And so what's helpful about the ancient Near Eastern accounts is it actually gives us some of that context. Because again, these accounts are earlier than Genesis 1 is. That is, we've got civilizations like the ancient Sumerians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and they all had Egyptians. They all had creation accounts long before Israel was even a nation. And so these provide us really good avenues for understanding what we should be looking at when we're looking at Genesis 1. And, uh, you know, we pick it up and we assume without any of that context that what this text is telling us is, you know, the biological origins of the universe, capital U, or even more broadly, that it's just regurgitating history for history's sake. And I'm constantly telling students that that is not what the Israelite Bible is doing. It's not just recounting history for history's sake. It's really a fault or a, an issue of our own uh, modern approach to quote-unquote history. And that is, you know, you go to a high school class, you go to a college classroom, and, you know, you read about, say, the French Revolution or the American Revolution, or you read a, you know, biography on Abraham Lincoln, and you just think, all right, I'm reading this stuff, and the only reason the writer's giving me this is just give me history for history's sake, because you got to learn history. It's a class you have to take in school. Uh, this is not the way that ancient Israelites or any ancient person thought about history. So it's not history for history's sake. What the biblical authors are doing is presenting history in a very specific way and including certain theological information because they would have deemed it important for the original audience of the text. That is the ancient Israelites. So when we approach the text, uh, we need to be thinking of in terms of why would this information have been important for the original reader, uh, that is the ancient Israelite. You know, there's a, a scholar named John Walton, and I crib quite a, quite a bit from two of his books. One is called The Lost World of Genesis 1, the other is called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Um, they're very short books in paperback. Anyone can understand them. I'm a bit evangelical when it comes to these texts. Uh, if you've not read John Walton's Lost World of Genesis 1, I think a lot of the contemporary debate, you know, the origins debate, science versus Bible, age of the earth stuff, all of that kind of melts away. Um, and, and Walton, who's, you know, a Bible-believing scholar, really lays this out and shows you what the, the original context and intent of the text was. And I try to do some of that in my course as well. But again, the, what, the, what Genesis 1 is trying to answer is not the biological origins of the universe. That is simply not the topic of Genesis 1. The topic of Genesis 1 is to show why the God of Israel is better than the gods that are featured in these other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. 
And so back to your original question, like how can we know that this is true or that this is the case or it's fact, you know? Well, it is fact. It's just that is the fact is that the God of Israel is the best God, right? Um, <laughs> or I should say it's fact from the, from the perspective of the ancient Israelites and the ancient Israelites are trying to make a case for this. And so, uh, but but the fact that's being that's being you know presented is not necessarily some sort of biological evolutionary scientific fact. We need to understand which facts are being presented, and then go with those facts, and not try to make the text say something that it doesn't say. Yeah, even just understanding the word fact, like what is a fact and how is it communicated? Because the ancient Israelites did so much communication of fact through narrative and storytelling. And and that was authoritative. And we think of fact is as like, could you have captured that with a video camera and replayed it exactly as it happened the first time? That's what we think fact is. And so I think, you know, it messes with our mind because we bring all kinds of questions to the text that the text isn't answering. That's right. And actually, even a, a, a close reading in English of the text will show that that certainly Genesis 1 is not concerned with what we might call the material origins of the universe or the world. Um, you know, to, to use a scientific term like the Big Bang, for example, the question of how did the universe start in the first place? You know, what was the initial movement? What was that spark or that bang that set off the, the growth of the universe, the expansion of the universe and the world as we know it? Well, that's a question or a series of questions, but it's not the Bible's series of questions. Uh, we know this actually just from the first sentence of Genesis 1, which is in Hebrew, which traditionally is translated as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, again, without any context, we look at that and we go, okay, so there's a the beginning, capital T-H-E, the beginning. That means the Big Bang, right? Or like the spark that created the universe. Well, not necessarily. And and actually, when you can read it in Hebrew, definitely not. Because Bereshit might mean in the beginning. It's possible. But it could also be what's called a temporal bait. Uh, that is, the first letter of, of the text is a bait, or an equivalent of an English B. And so it could easily be translated when at first, or when God began to create. So that is, oftentimes I, I talk about the metaphor of a, of a theater stage. When you sit down in your theater seat... Uh, the curtain opens and you'll see characters on the stage. You might see a set on the stage and that's where the story starts. Well, in Genesis 1, the curtain does not open at the Big Bang. The curtain opens long after that when God is forming and fashioning and giving function to the, the material world. I mean, again, you read the second verse of Genesis and it says, um, Now the land or the earth was tohu vavohu. We can get into that and what that means a little bit later on. But the point is, the earth is already there when the curtain comes up on Genesis 1. Um, God, this is what happens. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was dot, dot, dot. Okay, so again, we're, we're, we're a long time after a supposed Big Bang or the, or the first, you know, origin moment of the universe. So we know already that that is not the case. And moreover, there's material already there. So there's the land, 
remember that that the the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, or the wind of God, it kind of depends on really a wind of God because there's no ha, there's no the. So it depends on, we can talk about the translation of that as well. But what do we have? We've got land, uh, we've got waters, we've got the deep, or in Hebrew, the tahom. We've got this Ruach Elohim hovering over the face of the deep, over the face of the waters. So we have material that's there already when the curtain comes up. That's the set of our play. And so to ask a question of what's going on before the play starts is an utterly inaccessible question to be answered. And the Bible is just not concerned with that question. If Genesis 1 is not about material creation, what kind of creation is it about? And I think in your course, you kind of bring, you tease out what the the differences are. And I think you might even focus quite a bit on the Hebrew word bara. Um, so, so what, if we're not looking at material creation, what kind of creation are we looking at? Yep. Great question. So the Hebrew word for to create is bara. That's bait, resh, aleph, or in English, it would be like B-R-A, I suppose. Uh, but so bara, when we read, you know, um, when God began to create, so breshit bara, bara is the second word in the Hebrew. So it's that word create. Now, we step up to the plate, again, in our contemporary experience, and we think creation means material creation. Why? Because we look out our window and we look at buildings. We look at a restaurant that's being constructed, say, the next block over, and there are people physically building that space. And so we think, okay, so to create means to build physically or to build materially. And what I show in the course is that that is not usually what the word bara, almost never actually, throughout the Bible Ba'a never really means material creation. Uh, when ancient Israelites were thinking of creation, of Ba'a, they were thinking of, of what I call and what John Walton calls functional creation. So that is God assigning functions to things as opposed to building things materially. Uh, you, again, you see this right at the get-go of Genesis 1, let there be light. Okay, well, light... <laughs> Ancient Israelites were not thinking in terms of like physical photons of light being created. <laughs> right. That's not what was happening. Uh, but but the point is that God separates the light from the darkness. So what we've got is God separating two things and appointing things. What does God do with the light and the darkness? God calls the light yom, day, and God calls the darkness lila, night. So that is uh, what what the light is 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 day. So what we what we know then, even without Hebrew, is that when it says, let there be light, what God means is let there be a period of light. That is, let there be day and let there be night. Day and night are not material entities. But that is what the text is actually talking about. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, sort of facilely, simply, you know, on day four, the sun's created. So how could there be light before the sun's created? And the answer to I've this heard question that is since I was ten, yeah, exactly. And then, and then people open that up and go, "See, this is this is wrong or <laughs> right. whatever," and I'm going to throw it in the garbage can. I mean, that is just utterly, you know, it's a very childish approach to the text, but also a completely acontextual approach. All that betrays is that the reader has no clue what the reader is actually reading, uh, because day one is is it's a it's periods of day and night or or what being created. Um, not 
actual physical light in the first place. So, you know, again, we see non-material creation happening, God giving function to the light, function to the darkness. The same is true of, you know, let there be seas, you know? So what does God do? God says, well, let the waters that have just been kind of covering the area, let's separate those. And then dry land can appear, and then we'll pool the waters together in another place. We'll call that seas. Separating two things that are already there, when we know the land and the water is already there, that's not material creation. That is what's called functional creation, assigning function to things, putting the water here and calling it the sea, putting dry land here and calling it land. This is what God does throughout Genesis 1, um, populating, say, okay, what goes on the land? Vegetation. So what does the text say? Let the earth sprout forth vegetation. Is that God building things or saying, poof, here's material? Absolutely not. God placing animals on the land and sea creatures in the water and flying creatures in the air. I mean, it's it's God creating functional spaces and then populating those spaces with functionaries to fill them. Human beings are a, one of those functionaries, the most important of those functionaries, according to Genesis. But again, this is the idea of, of functional creation. And, and just to say one more thing about this. So the word ba itself, if you go throughout the Bible— you can see that it doesn't mean functional creation. I'm sorry, it doesn't mean... Let me back up and stop and say that again. One last thing to point out is that the Hebrew word bara usually does not refer to material creation at all throughout the Bible. So, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 51 says, you know, Lord, create in me a new heart and give me a renewed spirit. Well, the word for create is bara. The psalmist isn't talking about God building an aorta in the human body. It's appointing a clean heart, you know, a heart to follow God. Or God says in in Isaiah, you know, uh, Israel, I've created you as a nation. You don't create a nation materially. You appoint a certain people to be a certain nation. Uh, there, there are ones that are even more striking than that. In Numbers chapter 16, for example, there's Korah and his sort of entourage who revolt against Moses in the desert. And what God does is creates a hole in the earth and it swallows up Korah and his buddies. And so this is Numbers 1630. It says, if the Lord creates, bara, creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. So what does that mean? Here, bara actually means to create an absence of something. It's the exact opposite of material creation. So you can see this all throughout the biblical text. So it's up to us as, as modern readers to step up to the text and actually ask the question, what do the words on the page mean? And it's, it's, it's not responsible to assign an arbitrary understanding of a word that we might have bobbling around in our heads because we are not the ultimate arbiters of meaning here. The ultimate arbiters of meaning are the ancient Israelites who wrote the text. So t building on this idea of functional creation, how does, once we understand what the creating is that's being done in Genesis 1, how is that proving the Israelite point that their God is the highest of all gods? Great question. So how is, how is what we see God doing in creation in Genesis 1, how is that proving that ultimate point that I've been talking yes. about, which is why is the God of Israel the best God? Well, in order to 
to figure that out, we need to take a look at other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. So let's just take that one that we've just mentioned, the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation account. And in that text, what we have to begin with are two gods, Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu is a freshwater male deity, and Tiamat is his essentially consort or wife. And she is a kind of fiery, serpentine, saltwater, chaotic deity. And it's actually Tiamat who starts, it partially starts some disenfranchisement in the, in the heavenly realm with other gods that exist. That is the children of Apsu and Tiamat. And what happens is another god... I always god picture them as like these great-grandparents. Like they're the great-grandparents of all the gods. Yes, that's and right. And the buck yeah. is going to stop with them. <laughs> and, and, and indeed, until Marduk comes on the scene. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> Marduk is a, young, is a younger god who revolts against Tiamat and actually kills Tiamat. And what we have in the Enuma Elish is, again, not just the creation of the world, but this big war against all the gods. In the Babylonian account, not only do we have a theogony, that is a story of the creation of the gods, but we also have what's called the theomachy, which is a warring of those gods. So to go back and then compare to Genesis 1, there's only one God. And God creates very peacefully in Genesis 1. God spoke, yehi or, vayehi or. It's very nice and melodic in Hebrew. It let there be light, and there was light. All God has to do is speak it peacefully into existence. That's very different than the scenario we get in the Enuma Elish, where there's all these gods vying for power and fighting with each other, killing each other. In fact, Marduk splits Tiamat in half, it says, like a dried fish. And one of the halves of Tiamat, Marduk uses to set up the, the firmament in the skies. It's the exact same scenario that we see in Genesis when God creates the firmament in the skies. But God just speaks that into creation very peacefully. There's no need for military action. So what does that tell the ancient Israelite? These other ancient Near Eastern gods are violent, capricious, upset, chaotic. Our God is peaceful and unchallenged and non-military. Our God is better than the gods of Babylon. So it's, what we have here is like a priestly polemic against the gods of Babylon and indeed the whole society um, of Babylon. There are all sorts of other points to be drawn out vis-a-vis -vis the Babylonian account. I'll just give two more briefly. And I mentioned Tiamat, the, the kind of chaotic head deity uh, until Marduk comes and kills her. But Tiamat um, is, is a word that sounds a lot like the Hebrew word tahom, which shows up in Genesis. And it's the word for the deep, where God's, you know, kind of um, hovering over the deep. Okay, that in Hebrew, that deep is to home. And it's a Hebrew wordplay on the word Tiamat. So what we've got here is Tiamat in the Genesis version has just become a part of nature. Not a, a, a scary God that needs to be defeated, but something that the God of Israel has total and utter power over complete superiority in a very peaceful way. There's no challenge to this God. Moreover, you know, we we get things like in, in the Enuma Elish, the human beings, when they're finally created, they are created in order to be the slaves of the gods. In fact, the Enuma Elish says that we're going to kind of put on the shoulders of humanity all the workings that the gods can't handle. It's too much work for us, so we're going to give it to humans. Well, that's definitely not what we get in Genesis. In Genesis, God makes humanity in the Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, in order to kind of be co-workers and co-laborers with God to take care of 
the earth. The humanity is not, not slaves to the God of Israel. And why would that have been important historically? Well, if you'll remember, the Israelites are exiled to Babylon in 586 BCE, and they have a very strenuous relationship with the Babylonian Empire. And so from their perspective, the Babylonians are military. They actually came into Israel and took the Israelites away in chains as slaves to Babylon in the exile. And so what the Israelites can say is, yeah, your God's work in in terms of slavery, and you express that in your own military might against us. But our God is superior to your God. Despite the fact that we're in chains to you, we're not slaves to our God like you are to yours. I mean, that's a huge meta-theological ethical point that Genesis is making about the superiority of the God of Israel. And it's those questions that Genesis 1 is asking which are way higher in just a completely different stratosphere than the idea of like, you know, how did dirt biologically form? <laughs> yeah, and we in modern day, we're so obsessed with these questions of science. And and we've a little bit done that to ourselves, right? In the scientific revolution, there was this building animosity between the church and science and all these things. So we've we've kind of created this, but it's it's not actually that doesn't fit a very good reading of the right. Bible. And That's then right. we yeah. end up missing those big meta points that you were just talking about, which are far superior and have much bigger um, effects on our lives. Absolutely right. Yeah, the, what the Bible is concerned with are, are, are theological points that are much bigger than questions of evolutionary biology. And you're right, Cindy, historically readers, both religious and non-religious, both in the contemporary world and in the past, have read this text as some sort of like alternative to science or, you know, whether you like the Bible or you don't, that's how you're kind of reading it. And there's some sort of you know antagonism here. But I can't stress enough that antagonism is not germane to the biblical text. So that is the Bible itself is not even a conversation partner with scientific theory. I, I I feel like I should say that again. The biblical text, Genesis 1, is not a conversation partner with biological science. They're merely, they're, they're in completely different realms. They're not asking the same questions. They're not answering the same questions. So to put them into conversation is actually to misunderstand, I would say, both the Bible and science simultaneously. There is a lot to digest from that conversation. And I'll mention that you can find all sorts of translations of the Enuma Elish online if you want to read more about the Babylonian creation narrative. I think it's a really great exercise. You can go through and underline all the things that sound familiar to the biblical text and then go back and circle all the things that are quite different. In that comparison, you will find some amazing concepts that are at the core of what the Bible is doing. If you love conversations like this, join us at IBC, where you will have access to many of the amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. And keep an eye out for this class, which is being released soon. And while you wait for it, you can indulge in other classes that allow you to earn credit towards Israel Bible Center's certificate program in Jewish context and culture. 
Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 